This episode of Landmine Radio is sponsored by Dittman Research. Do you know what the most valuable thing in the world is? High-quality information. Because high-quality information informs much better decision-making. Dittman Research has been providing high-quality information to Alaska's leading businesses, organizations, and campaigns for 50 years. Do you really know what Alaskans think about your company or your issue? How about your clients, your shareholders, or your employees? So stop fumbling around in the dark. Hire Dittman Research and find out what's really going on. DittmanResearch.com All right, folks, back. Very excited to be here with uh, Joelle Hall from the uh, AFL-CIO. How you doing? I'm great, Jeff. How are you? I'm good. I've been, I've been wanting to do this podcast with you for a long time. So oh, well, thank you. I'm glad we're thank here. You. Yeah. Um, before we get into the labor stuff you do, I want to go back on your, face, on your Facebook. There's a picture of you in a military uniform looking quite intimidating. <laughs> so you were in the military, huh? I was. Yeah, I... Um... In high school, I was an exchange student, and when I got home from being an exchange student, I realized that I wasn't ready to go to college, and I wanted to... Where'd you go to exchange student at? Honduras. Oh, wow. So I lived in Honduras all of 1982. And then I graduated from high school, and I decided that I wanted to learn another language, so I was able to join the military with... um, and I was able to qualify for a job... That sent me to the military's language school in Monterey. Oh, yeah. That's a really famous, that's like the famous language school. Yeah, yeah. So I went, I enlisted in the job I was, I was an interrogator in the Army, interrogator translator. And so that that job requires you to go to DLI. So I was fortunate enough to go there. Um, what, what were you, uh, what language were you doing? Well, that, I was just about to tell you, the, so the first time I went to DLI, I went, um, initially they chose me for the Arabic language. Ooh. And so I had been, I spent six months in the Arabic language, and this is 1984. And right around that time, the Department of the Army issued a, down a, a decision saying there would be no more female Arabic-speaking interrogators for the uh, for now what we know are the cultural reasons about women interrogating oh, you gotta, men. You got to wear and you got to wear the uh, hijab or the or the. Well, you know, in 1984, they just decided that we were not the best candidate for actually getting information out of those prisoners at mm-hmm. that moment in time. So that was po- when the uh, Lebanon, the bombing was 84, right? In Beirut? Mm, I think it was a little earlier because I think I was still in high school. We were, I was in the army around Libya and Panama. Remember that? When we, Noriega. Noriega, oh yeah. Yeah. So I ended up going into Russian, which you're thinking is funny. Oh, I didn't know that. I speak. Yeah. Wow, look at see you got it right in the past tense. I know. Well, I can say a few things. So I spent um they pulled me out. I went right back to the alphabet with Russian like a week later. Ultimately graduated from the school in Russian and then spent uh, two years at Fort Bragg uh in a psychological operations unit where I was a Russian linguist um working in psyops. Oh my God! What I did not know this about you. <laughs> yeah. So you were kind of like a you were kind of like a spy a little bit. Well, no, more you, like you weren't um, doing the intelligence gathering, but you were doing the uh, maybe. It's hearts and minds, right? It's propaganda development and dissemination. So that's wow. what that's what psyops is for. Were there any Russians they work, work working with you guys? Or? No, because it was the Cold War. Like there were no Russians. There were no. So, so all of my teachers were literally a hundred years old, because they were all children. Of white Russians who had escaped mm-hmm. uh, during or right after the revolution. Yeah. So no, I mean, in this country, in the early 80s, 
There so, was almost so no Russians. I heard a story once. You know, I speak Russian. I've studied it for a long mm-hmm. time. And um, during, I think it was after World War II, they were really, the Cold War was, yeah. you know, ramping up. And they were trying to get m- more Americans to be able to understand Russian and speak Russian so they could interpret and they could translate stuff. And, you know, there's like, for some reason, it's like University of Illinois, University, Illinois, University of Michigan, okay. Indiana. They have all these like Russian programs there. Oh, yeah. It's really, mm-hmm. I don't know why, but it's the Midwest. So. Mm-hmm. Um, they got these people who were, you know, getting really good and speaking Russian, and uh, they were translating. But they were they were hearing radio communications between pilots and and military. And if you spoke Russian at all, or if you're familiar with Russian, there's a lot of fucking foul language. Yeah, like you could speak yes. almost only in. And there's so many just different like words that can be used as like devushka, like, devushka. All, right. Yeah, but then, yeah. The, then the really bad words yeah. the, the deri- <laughs> derive from like uh, the yeah. female and female yeah. area. You can yeah. use them like a hundred ways. So right. they were having this problem where they're, they're like, we don't know what they're saying. Yeah. Because because they were they were basically using this kind of like street talk. Right. That, that it took right. Them, so they had to eventually kind of get some defector people and they eventually figured out a way to like yeah. listen to these folks. But but you could literally speak in Russian in sentences and you're speaking 80% like oh, s- yeah. slang cuss words. You'll laugh. The first sentence I ever formed, this is a military school, it is vot tank. Oh, that there, is there's a tank. A ta- yeah, there's a tank. That's a tank. Yeah. <laughs> because it's a simple structure. Vot tank. It's nominative case. It's right there. It's the most simple kind of sentence you that, can that, make. That's for me the hardest part about Russian is I, I, I speak it pretty well. I understand it very well. But I always get confused sometimes on the mm-hmm. words because a word, because of the six cases, yeah. can depending what's happening, can change pretty pretty drastically. Yeah, exactly. And, and be a whole. Di- and then some words never change. Right. So it's, it's a really challenging language. I had a really good time studying Russian. Did so you, go I, to, did you go to Russia, a Russian-speaking country? No, because um, once again, this is like 1984. You know, so the the the, the Soviet Union wasn't going to be over, and Russia wasn't going to be open for seven more six more years. So I was full time, full, full Cold War era. Eighty four. Right? You're 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 gonna you're gonna hate me. Yeah. I was born in eighty four. I know. Gonna... I know. <laughs> <laughs> but but we're square Cold War still in the eighties. You know, Reagan's the president. It's Cold War. It's like you know, it's the thing. So right? when did you enlist? What year? Eighty three. See, so you. Uh, I graduated the class of eighty three. Wow. So you were. Was it? It was the language and it was the traveling you were interested I mean, were you kind of like a reagan supporter or? oh no no <laughs> it was the languages i i was ready to, i wanted to learn another one and it just seemed like the school was so good and how was your spanish was it oh my spanish is great yeah I, I qualified in um so when i graduated from russian i took the test in russian and then in spanish so at that point when i went to bragg i had a spanish and i had a russian language I, um as like a declination or, you know, like an assignment. Yeah. I, I met somebody once. I had a Russian uh, friend, this, this girl I knew, and she was dating a military guy. Uh-huh. And he did not, he was like American, like full American. And he went to the school for a year and he fucking spoke Russian pretty right. well. Right. I was like shocked. Yeah. Well, so, it's very intense. It's 47 weeks. It's six hours a day, five days a week, two or three hours of homework every night. It's just, you start. And you just don't stop. It's very intense. Yeah, I was I was pretty surprised how well he spoke. I mean, he, mm-hmm. and he, he was not just spoke well, but he, I mean, you could tell because of the, the schooling. I mean, he knew the grammar stuff really. I was oh, yeah. s- sucked at the grammar part. Right. It's funny. I always, like, my daughter's going to go to college next week, and she wants to study Russian. So we've, I've been getting out, like, old Russian textbooks, and, and I'm trying to, while I don't remember very much, and I can still read, because, of course, it's an alphabet. You spell. I mean, you can read. I don't know what I'm saying you know, the, the good time. thing. The good thing about their alphabet and their, lang- and their language is uh, when you read it, they, they, they don't have, they have very few 
um, problems where English, where like T-H-E is like the, uh-huh. it's pretty much always you can read it pretty right. easily. Yeah. And so what I was trying to, ex- it's like, I can explain to you what each case does. I just can't tell you how to decline each thing anymore. Yeah, no, I can't remember how to do it. But I, what I tell people is like, I understand the architecture of how this thing works. Like, I understand how it works, but I don't know all the pieces and parts to make it work anymore. It's just so different. It it's so different than English because in Russian, you can take a sentence and you can literally say the words in any order you want. Right. And people, it doesn't really matter. Mm-hmm. It still has a No convey. articles. It's just interesting. Yeah. You know? So you're, you're doing that. Um, when did you come to Alaska? Uh, 1990, I had gotten out of the army, gone back to college, gone back to DLI one more time. And then I'd pulled another year of college. And then by that point, I'd, got, I'd gone to the DLI for Korean. So I was, I'd gone to the Korean school. And I was ready to go to college, but I needed a school that had Russian, Spanish, and Korean. And frankly, there weren't a lot of country, schools in this country in 1990 that had all three of those. And most of them were in L.A. And, and I'm a California kid. I just didn't really want to move to L.A. Yeah, L.A. with the traffic. My sister I just lives didn't there. I didn't want to do it. Fucking yeah. traffic. And- yeah. So I was at a family reunion and I had applied for University of Washington and they didn't want me. So I was at a family reunion and my uncle was there from Fairbanks. And he said, we have Spanish, Russian and Korean. You should move to Fairbanks. That was literally July. In August, I had moved to Fairbanks. Oh my God. You you went to Fairbanks? I did. Moved into the dorms. And so... How old were you? Like 20 something? Yeah, I was 24. Wow. And I... So and I had been in the reserves the whole time, and when I moved to Alaska, I switched to the Alaska National Guard. So then I got to be have in-state tuition, and I was continued to serve for another year. But then that's how I met my husband. Like my third day in Alaska, I signed into my guard unit. He was um, in the guard too. Yeah. So he was. You were enlisted. Yeah, we were both enlisted. Might, otherwise, that's a. I believe the fraternization. I believe right? that's against the rules. You came to the mm-hmm. officer. Mm-hmm. Uh, we were only one rank apart. We were E five and E six. I, I heard that whenever there is an instance of an officer and an enlisted person, they always. They usually punish the enlisted person because they, they've invested so much in the officer. Then. <laughs> Is that true? I don't. I would assume it's the other way around, but I think nowadays everybody just gets, everybody would get punished. Yeah. Um, I, just, I think they expect the officers to have uh, a stronger sense of decorum. I wonder when the, uh, the blackface is going to start hitting the military because <laughs> that Trudeau, did you see the Trudeau picture? Yeah, I did. Oh my God. It was People, like, people are so his stupid. His hands and his legs. Mm. I mean, he went the whole deal. He went, he the, went the whole, home. he went the full costume. Yeah, no. Oh man. Um, okay, so you're in Fairbanks, you meet the husband and you get married right yeah, away? Or? Yeah, a couple years later, yeah. Wow. Mm-hmm. That's like the Alaska story. So you, you didn't necessarily plan on staying here, you didn't know. When you moved here, I had no idea. But as soon as I met him, I was like, "Oh, okay. Well, that's what he's Alaska guy, born and raised. You know, he was born before statehood. He's lived yeah, from Juneau." I've not seen, I've not met him, but I've seen pictures, and he yeah. looks like a very rugged, kind yes. of Alaskan character. He's a character, all right. He's hilarious. So, did did you have? Because your daughter is what, like eighteen? Yeah, She's graduated college or high school, right? Yeah, and our son's twenty. So we waited a long time. We were together for ten years before we had kids. My parents were married. My dad was in the navy twenty five years. Yeah. 12 years before they had me. Yeah, yeah. And they have a younger sister. They did their partying, they said. Kind of same. Yeah, I like that. We were not in a hurry. So how did you, you moved to Anchorage at some point? Yeah, and um, he got transferred here. Uh, So I graduated from college and actually in, I was in Fairbanks when I was the University of Alaska intern in the legislature, which is kind of how this this whole part of my life started. Oh, that's by, the intern pro, the Ted Stevens yeah. thing, right? Well, it, it wasn't Ted Stevens back then. It was a University of Alaska internship, and I was an intern for Fran Ulmer, 
um, before she was the lieutenant governor. Obviously, she was the minority leader of the Alaska House. I know, I know Lewis. Mm, oh, yeah. I've taken Lewis to orthodontist appointments before. Oh, my. So he told me that uh, we were talking once, and he was talking about some of the... Um, he was in Juneau once, and I don't know, he got in trouble. They were in high school, and he was talking about... I forget that some of the legislators were like, what are you doing, Lewis? Like, <laughs> they'd pick him up. <laughs> it was like really funny story. It's a very small town. He was still a little kid when I was there, but... Um, yeah, I work for Fran, and then um, that's kind of how the whole politics thing started. I'm living in Fairbanks. I'm work for Fran. I come back. I run some campaigns. 1994. Legislative or local or? I ran um, Sam Cotton's campaign for governor oh, in wow. Fairbanks in 1994. He was a former uh, fishing game commissioner. Yes, and right? prior to that, he'd been Speaker of the House. Mm-hmm. Wow. In the day. Yeah. When did he run for governor? 1994 against Tony Knowles and Stephen McAlpine. So he oh, he lost the primary just to Tony Knowles, and then yeah, and then and then Fran Ulmer went on to become. They just did a twenty five year. Did yeah, you hear about that? They I saw did, the pictures. Yeah, there's a video they put out twenty five mm-hmm. year uh, since Knowles got elected. Yeah, um, yeah. Some of those videos were those like commercials they put in that video were kind of really funny. Oh yeah, yeah. The old school. Yeah, yeah. So you're doing these campaigns. You're getting into politics, and that that's like your your start into politics was right. Was exactly. How did you get into for- that? Was there like an opening, or did you apply for it? I wanted to do the internship. I'd heard about it. Political science was my minor and foreign language was my major. And I thought, oh, that looks like fun. I'll go do that. So Mally and I had just gotten married and his family was from Juneau. I'm like, oh, I'll just go to Juneau for a session, just see what that's all about. And um, and then once you're in, you kind of get hooked. You know, oh, yeah, you're no, really, I, you, I know. I'm sure you well know that once you get in, you're kind of hooked and I went back to Fairbanks and I had a job I didn't like. And then people started saying, hey, can you do this little thing, this little thing? And then, you know, then you before you know it, you get hired to run a campaign. And then I ran a Fairbanks part of a ballot initiative again in 1994. And by 96, we had moved to Anchorage because my husband got transferred here with the because he was full time Alaska National Guard. So my husband did 35 years in the Alaska National Guard. 35. And 27 years active service. What was he like an E? Nine, nine, or, yeah. Mm-hmm. Kamal's Arger major when he retired. Ooh, don't mess mm-hmm. with that guy. I, it's not a good idea. My dad used to always tell me he was twenty five years in the Navy. Yeah, enlisted, and he said that um, they'd be in the he was in the carriers, you know, and he said uh, the butter bars that guys yeah. would come under the academy or the um, ROTC, and yeah. they, they'd come on the. Some of them would say, <laughs> "Try to you boss know, around a soldier oh, major." Oh, oh yeah, like you know, a chief <laughs> chief petty officer or something. Like, excuse me, officer. Or excuse me, petty officer, I would take a salute. Mm-hmm. And they were like, that usually lasted about one time <laughs> until they realized. <laughs> yeah, he, we met, we met, obviously, like I said, we met in the service and then he served for a long time. Long oh, time. 35, that's a long, my dad was 25, 35 is a long time. Yeah, 35 years in the guard, 27 years active. And then his active duty time, some of his active duty time was, um, so he enlisted in 72. He's older than I am. And so that was all in Germany. Tail end of Vietnam, 72, 76. Oh, he's he like about, about 10 years older. He's 11 years older than me. Mm-hmm. Same. My mom, my dad's about eight years older than my mom. So mm-hmm. Look at that. See? See? It's a, good, it's a good good formula. Yeah, it works. So you came to Anchorage, and then when did you get into, because I've, I've been in, in politics ever since I've been around, Do you've been Joel uh, at the AFL. So <laughs> well, that's true. I uh, When I came here, my first job uh, actually in Anchorage was, I was the ED of the Democratic Party. Uh, I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah. In the 96 and 98 cycles. So the 96 um, and then 98's the uh, Knowles reelect. Mm-hmm. So I did That was the, that Lindauer thing, wasn't it? Was oh my. So, so The best. So did this guy, he, was it true that he had his wife had like mob money? 
that was funding him that came out later because they wanted some trash company to do business in Alaska? Uh, nothing would surprise me about that. They guy. found all this like million that mm-hmm. was the wife, and there was a mob connection. And literally, I would wake up every day and could not wait to get to the paper just to see what wackadoodle thing the guy had like, said. What if I was around then? Oh, with my oh thing. my god! So oh my so god. so then they they abandoned him right, and they put Robin Taylor up. It was like a write-in or something, didn't they? Yeah, that might have been the case. It was a lost cause, let's just say. It was a t- it was a bad year for them. Lindauer. Lindauer. What a name. Yeah. So, and then in 99, that's when I that's when I uh, got pregnant with our son and so I like the, the party's just a super tough job. It's lots and lots of hours and I was like, I don't think I want to do that and have a baby. And I thought I would stay home, to be honest, and my husband was an E7 and we could swing it and but then People kept calling saying, hey, can you do this little thing? Can you do this little thing for me? Can you do this little thing? So then I had my own business for 10 years doing political contracting work and political consulting work. And so I did that for 10 years while my kids were growing up. And um, I had lots of different types of clients, lots of different stuff well worked on, lots of policy, public policy, electoral politics, all the things. So you could like work from home or didn't have to have like a... Nine to five thing. Right. I just kind of worked around their schedules. Mm-hmm. And it was great. So how, how'd the labor, I mean, I assume through that you probably had relationships with folks in labor. Is that how that? Well, yeah, it kind of starts. I ran um, some um, campaigns from the Chugach Electric Board of Directors when I was a consultant. And then. Oh, what, year, what year was that? Mm. Was that the uh, Ray Craig years? Oh, yeah. Oh, Absolutely. I've heard, I've heard yeah, yeah, Rebecca Logan and Liz Vasquez. And um, that was back, because I ran for the Chugach Board. Oh, I in, remember that. In, yeah, in thirteen because I was, I'd run for the Senate, and I remember seeing there was because I was in the bylaws committee before I because you know Phil uh, Steyer. Yeah, he's like, hey, you should get involved. You know, there's all these different opportunities. So he's a good I, guy. I, I, yeah, I like Phil a lot. So I saw there was, and this is when I was kind of I just ran for twenty in twenty twelve. Back then I was like hooked up with some very kind of right wing people who had fed me some really kind of bad information, and I was kind of one of these like you know like anti labor. That was a long time ago. Yeah, and I, I saw three names were up. And there was three seats, so there was three seats and three people, three incumbents running. So I just put my name in, uh-huh. and and all these people they started coming after me like crazy because they thought I was some. They were like the, the days of Ray Krieg and the <laughs> rate payers are over, you know. And I was like, I don't know. <laughs> it was a crazy time. That lot, was a crazy. A lot time. of litigation, right? A lot of, lot of litigation. A and- lot of, um, you know, so that was a pretty aggressive, uh, little weird place to work for a while. Did two or three years with them, I think. And then um, in 2006, when Tony Knowles and Andrew Halcrow and Sarah Palin are all running for governor, I was in Tony Knowles' headquarters when Jim Sampson, you know who Jim Sampson is? Uh, so Jim Sampson uh. is, um, was the commissioner of labor under, um, uh, I think, Cooper and potentially also during Knowles. He was the mayor of the, mayor, mayor of the Fairbanks North Star Borough and a longtime labor leader. And he is my boss's predecessor. So... Before there was Vince, there was Jim. And I know Jim from Fairbanks. Yeah, I've heard the name. I just, okay, that kind of rings a bell. Yeah. So I knew Jim from Fairbanks, and I was walking through, and Jim said, hey, what are you doing? You know, do I need some help on the labor campaign. Will you come run the labor campaign? So I went over there and did that in 2006. And then in 2008, I I went back to work on the labor campaign, and by that point, Vince was the president of the state fed. And then I just basically never left. So you're the, you're the uh, operations manager, right? Right, yeah. yeah. I have like, I'm political director, director think, of operations. Yeah. It's kind of like a little bit of... I was going to say, you do, a lot of, you do a lot of things. I do a lot of things, yeah. So yeah. You, you guys represent um, 
all kinds of different uh, unions, right? There's oh, absolutely. A, a lot of you're like an umbrella kind of organization. Exactly. Right? We're like a we're an umbrella organization. We're a federation of all. There's only a few big organized groups of workers that are not in the AFL CIO. So that would be any Alaska is not in the AFL CIO. And there's um, the Alaska Correctional Officers are not in the AFL-CIO. Was, wasn't one of the striking groups for the ferry not in the AFL? Right, the, IBU. Uh, Inland Boatman's Union. Yes, IBU is not in the AFL. and um, but, but the other ones are, right? Yes, Masters, Mates, and Pilots. And... Um, MEBA. MEBA, yeah. Marine, me. Marine Engineer Beneficial Association. Yes. Me, I know all these acronyms. Good job, you. Ooh. Yeah. I was reporting on that for a while. So. Yeah. So there's a few that are not in, but everyone else is basically in the AFL-CIO, and we're about a 50-50 house, right? So 50% are public employees, and 50% are either building trades or private unions. So Unite Here, UFCW, which is uh, United Food and Commercial Workers, Nurses. So, so you guys were part of the uh, Sheridan thing, right? Absolutely. That was the... the Unite it, it wasn't a strike, it was a boycott. Boycott. Right? I think mm-hmm. I might have said I wrote strike at some point, but... You guys had finally come to an agreement, and I made the joke in my column because the Democrats had their gala there, yeah. and I, I said it's a, it's all kumbaya over there now. It seems to be yeah. It so was that a was a long time boycott, long time right? Boycott, yeah, over and, ten years, and there's still a boycott on the Hilton. And that was over just wages, or uh, well, they've contract. been they've been working they've been working without a contract for ten years. So the company had refused to give them a contract. They had cut their health care. They're constantly trying to adjust the terms of the contract. That. The company who owned the Sheraton engaged in any number of the bad things that employers do, you know, uh, illegal decertifications, um, punishing employees who were working on union stuff. I mean, all the stuff that you can't mm-hmm. do. They were doing all those things. And then they just fought, fought, fought to get to a contract. And um, it really was as simple as a new GM came in and said, I have no idea why we're fighting. About I was, was going to ask, why did it? Because I saw the pictures. Literally one guy. I saw came. the pictures and it seemed like it was like this big happy. Everybody's like, hey, we're, it's right. good. We're good. Right. Well, the, the workers, most of the workers have been working in these hotels for a long time. Like, there's always a turnover <coughs> of the J-1 visa crew. They come and go. Mm-hmm. There's a few comes and goes. But this is a union workplace, and people have been working in these hotels for 25 years, 20 years, 30 years. I mean, they work they work a lot, but they work in these hotels for a long time. And so the people who had been there a long, long time just decided that they were going to stick they were going to stick it out and they weren't going to quit their jobs and they were just going to do what they needed to do. So what was the boycott? Basically all people that are supporting your union wouldn't use their their Correct. Uh, yeah, cert- the workers were still working there. It wasn't a strike. It wasn't like you couldn't cross the line. It was just an a suggestion that people who supported the workers not patronize the establishment until they get right with the workers. So, so how does that, not just in that case, but in general, generally when you have these boycotts, I mean, is it just kind of a like a standoff and then somebody has to, I mean, somebody, one side says, I don't want to give in and the other side doesn't, is it kind of just somebody eventually gives in or they just eventually just say, look, we got to work this out. Or in this case, this one guy came in and said, hey, let's, let's fix this. I'm sure it can be all of those things, right? Sometimes they try to ramp it up. Sometimes they try to... Um, everybody's trying to play. There's only, I mean, we've all seen this movie a thousand times, right? Sometimes they bring in, you know, a super strong kind of like um, ball busting manager and they're Mm -hmm. just going to give it to the, you know, guys and they're going to set this place straight. And then that also never works. And um, so you, you just, in this particular case, you have a bunch of workers who are very, very strong and committed to sticking together. 
And they've just been like, nope, you're not going to break us apart. You're not going to pit us against one another. We're going to have a fair contract. We deserve health care. And you can't give us workloads that are going to kill us because these largely women do a, a huge amount of physical labor every day. I mean, cleaning a hotel room, lifting beds, moving sheets, cleaning. Uh-huh. It's just an enormous amount of physical labor. And they kept upping the number of rooms that they had to do in a shift. And just to the point where they physically couldn't do it. And then they were getting reprimanded for those things. And so that's just an example. Um, there's always the the subordinate shenanigans with people who are not managing for maximum efficiency, right? You have retaliations. You have bad behavior. You have silliness. So then, what, what, what happened with the new guy? He just, he just took over and he, he called or he said, hey, what's going on? He gotta- basically said... I don't understand what we're fighting about. This seems silly. We should just come to the table and have a conversation. And when they did, they found the mutual ground in the middle that the company could afford and that the workers would agree to. It was pretty quick. It was super quick once the new GM came. It's crazy in life, not just that, but just how how often in life and in, in, in it's a just business, attitude, so, man. Sometimes just one person, right? It could be a problem right. of thousands. Once, sometimes right. just it takes one or two people. They can, yeah. they can, you know, through leadership and, and through mm-hmm. getting setting the you know path, do it. And there's always, you know, a boycott. Uh, the, you know, the strategy of a boycott is to deprive the institution of, of business. Mm-hmm. So if you do that well enough, you know, they start to have real trouble filling their hotels. And and he also probably saw that you know some of that pressure would be alleviated. Well, I you, mean, it worked. I mean, guys, that Democrats had their big party, their big deal right? there. So. Oh yeah. And people are going back into there, and we hope that they will continue to patronize the Sheraton and stay out of the Hilton, because nice. the Hilton's never changed. And I also want just make sure everybody understands that the people who own these hotels are not Alaskans. These are like uh-huh. hedge fund owned conglomerates who they don't care at all about your friends or neighbors who works in. Yeah, their I think hotel. the only big hotel. I mean, the Captain Cook's still privately owned, but I mean, right. all these big hotels, Hilton, Sheraton, Marriott, right. they're all owned by these huge conglomerates, and they're not owned by the Hilton company no, either. No, they, they're they, owned by like hedge funds, exactly. The Hilton here is owned by a company called Columbia Sussex, which is like a bottom feeder hotel chain all yeah, over I, the. I, and okay. this is the only property in the ho- in the Columbia Sussex chain that is union at all still. They oh, wow. they go in and bust the union everywhere they go, and yeah. this this is the one property that has just been fighting back for, for the Hilton. I think the days of Baron Hilton are over. I mean, they they're owned by some other. Oh yeah, no, this is a this guy who owns uh, Columbia Sussex is also actually also recently bought three more properties in Anchorage. So making a move, yeah, making a move. So you know, this is something that I learned when I first ran for office in 2012. I was around some people who. You know, the kind of talking points of, you know, these labor unions, they, they bleed people, they take their dues, they, they use them for political campaigns, which which is I, later I found that are not true. Mm-hmm. That's a, that's not accurate. Um, and, you know, they, they one of the things I've noticed is they kind of say, well, why are they making so much money? And oftentimes they're, they're I mean, they're making a good le- living wage, they're give, right. making a good salary. We're not making as much or why do they get special treatment? And it's just just kind of put people against each other. And I just came to the realization after learning a lot that you, know, you look at states where there's strong unions, wages are higher, you know, people have b- better benefits. I mm-hmm. mean, they, they, have, they live their lives better. They have better quality of life. And people who live in these states where there's very little union protection, I mean, it's just, it's really hard. It is true. Um, the high tide raises all boats. So if you think that you would... Uh, have that kind of like Alaska premium on your wage if it wasn't there for 
all the people who came before us, who worked those jobs on the slope, who set the standard of what it meant to be justly compensated here to live in this place, you know, you would, you wouldn't, you know, we, people should be able to band together to negotiate to make the best possible deal with their employer. Why do you think some politicians or some people, I mean, why, why, why are some people just so ardently anti-union, whether it's private or, or public? I know it's different reasons, but some people are very, you know, right to work and bust up unions, and that seems to be kind of their main... Uh, well, it's probably two things. One is probably um, they resent the political power. Two, I think there's just a lot of people who think that the boss is the boss and you should just do whatever he says. And I don't agree with that, right? Um, and I actually think if you really dig down, no American really believes that, right? That the boss is always yeah, right. Yeah, that's, that's, that's like <clears throat> not a very American like. But you belief. see that under the surface of it all, right? Like, who are you to stand on? Like, they're paying you, you should just do it. No, no, that's not how this works, right? The, the workers are there to keep the, to keep the work working, to keep the place safe, and to make sure that the boss is treating everybody there with respect. And we can be, we can, we are the greatest economy on the planet with all of those things intact. Like it doesn't cut down our product productivity to be safe and respectful. And we think that those are important values. And, but I do think that there is a fair amount of people who are, you know, very traditional in their ideas of power. The boss is the boss and you just do what uh-huh. he says. I just don't want to say to that. I just disagree with that. I just... I, I think some people have, you know, there, there'll be an instance. I mean, every organization, every institution is going to have a bad apple or something happened mm-hmm. that, that makes people think. So I think there's people who say, oh, they protect bad workers or they protect, you know, lazy people or they, they you know, they saw something where someone did a, something and they didn't get let go. Well, I they, would ask everybody listening to you. How many times have you dealt with a boss who is capricious and arbitrary with you or any of your coworkers? So if you think the issue is the person next to you who isn't working as hard, I would say, okay, but what about the boss who is being mean to Linda on Tuesday when she's late because he doesn't like Linda? Uh And he's sweet as pie to Mary when she's up on Tuesday because Mary's cute, right? It's this type of capriciousness and this type of arbitrary behavior that most workers are, when they're in a union, it's the protection from that kind of thing that they're looking for. Well, I think the other good example, I think it was you or somebody told me once uh, on, the, on the state level for the, for the uh, public unions, you know, it's a very political, you know, place sometimes. And Anybody could just say you're fired. Bye. And we saw that with the uh, these resign or these. Right, the uh, governor tried to do that his first week on so, the job. So, so mm-hmm. it's 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 great that people can have a, a, a place to go and say, hey, I, I don't believe this is. I mean, if somebody did something wrong, I think we can all agree. If they did stole you know stole them something, weren't going to work, mm-hmm. you're doing something mm-hmm. wrong. But but if it's arbitrary, right, 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 for a lot of people who don't have unions, they just sorry, you know, right. they have to go to a lawyer and pay fifty thousand dollars. So what happens when you're protected by a contract is that there's somebody to advocate on your behalf, right? So what they pay in their union dues is they're paying for somebody to come in and help them in those times Mm -hmm. of trouble, right? And you're right. People who are not protected by a union, their only recourse is to call a lawyer. And, And if you're in a union, you call your business manager or your business agent and they come in and say, okay, to your employer, all right, what's going on in here? What I figured out is most... I didn't know this, but most labor attorneys, and I think probably nationwide, but in Anchorage, um, they represent employers. There's only a few that represent employees. 
and, well, and and they don't really do um, con- contingency stuff. They basically want money up front because some of these things last years. Well, most um, we actually in the unions themselves, most of our affiliates have in-house lawyers. To no, rep- I, I mean, the, the the private lawyers, if you call up, you know, oh, they, they yeah. mm-hmm. oftentimes represent the employers because it's a better gig mm-hmm. or more money, <laughs> more money. Mm-hmm. Well, it's it's um it's important to remember that. Whether you are in a union or not in a union, there is a series of responsibilities that an employer has that they're supposed to engage in before they fire you. Mm -hmm. They're supposed to counsel you. They're supposed to document. They're supposed to do all the things. These are basic labor laws that apply to the union and the non-union member. And so if my experience is that it's often the employer who does not want to document these things. They don't want to go through these things. They just want to be able to just... Like fire people at will. Well, like almost nobody can be fired at will. There usually has to be a process. And the union's job is to come in and say, did you follow your own internal processes? Did you document these things? Do you have anything in writing? Do you have any evidence? Do you have any proof that what you're alleging this person I mean, did, it's, did? It's not that much different to, to the courts. You know, if, if I get yeah. charged with a crime, they have to show me, you know, I have, they have to prove I did the crime. And mm-hmm. if my, my lawyer can show I didn't do it or, you know, show the process wasn't followed, then that should, people should have the right to... In the military, it's the same thing, right? In the military, they aren't, they don't have a union, but, you know, if you meet the criteria and you can move up, then you move up. If mm-hmm. you don't, and if that employer or that commander doesn't want to promote you and they've never documented anything about your failure to do your job... Why should you not get promoted? Because that commander just doesn't happen to like you? No. No, that's not right. Yeah, that's a good, that's a good example. So, so speaking of this, now we're talking about this Janice thing. This has been mm-hmm. in the news big lately with yeah. uh, the, governor, the attorney general and this opinion. Uh, so talk a little bit about, I understand this on a super high level, but a little bit about the Janice decision, kind of the, how, they, how that impacted labor in the country, and then what the attorney general is doing, and now this kind of litigation now facing the state and the, I guess it's um, Alaska State Employees, AS, ASEA? ASEA. Mm-hmm. So Janus was a decision that moved its way up through the, through the courts. A guy named Mark Janus sued the International Union AFSME, which is ASEA. AFSME is um, the International Union. And they went to the Supreme Court. And, and this is on an issue relating to something called agency fee. So let me kind of explain before Janus, there were two types of people in a union workplace. Members who paid full dues, which include the fees associated with bargaining and representation. And then they would pay for, I mean, the union can have limited political speech. It can say, I don't like that bill. But it can't say vote for bill with dues money, right? It can say, this bill is bad for workers. It can't say... Bill is bad for workers with union dues. Huh. So that's a separate. It's a that's a separate pile of money that can go to the vote for bill pile. The vote for bill pile is all voluntary, always has been collected separately, and it's held in a pack just like everybody else's political dollars in Alaska. But we're allowed to advocate on behalf of our members on issues like workers' compensation bills, things like that. Right. So that's an example of the type of political speech a union can engage in that is not. Um, electoral speech. It's political speech, okay. right? So those are, I think that's how I would differentiate that. So prior to Janus, you could either remember and pay for all of those things, or you could be what's called a fee objector. 
And then you would be responsible for paying only the part associated with your representation and your contract negotiation. So they would be some percentage taken off that you would not be required to pay because you didn't want to be have any of your speech talk about how bad the workers' comp bill was. You only want to talk about your representation. So what Janice decided was a very, very narrow decision. And what it says is that if you are a non-member, and this is the really important part relative to Clarkson, if you're a non-member, you can't even be required to pay those fees associated with your representation. You can ride free on the contract. You so completely freeload on the contract. They still get the they still yes. get the benefits of the contract. See, I, I don't understand that. So people have said, you know, right to work, right to work. I don't want to pay the dues, and I say, okay, fine. But you should not get any benefit, and that's a that's the inherent problem. Is how can you negotiate a contract and have twenty percent or thirty percent of the people are they going to negotiate their own contracts? You know, no, they're no, still covered no, by the contract. It wouldn't work. It's not practical. Right. So they're still covered by the contract. And, and if you decide now not to pay those dues, you're still covered by the contract. They're still required to represent you if you go to grievance, but you don't get to vote on the contract. That, that's like, I'm on my condo board. I'm going to stop paying my dues, you know? Hey. Right. <laughs> uh, it's never really made any sense to me, but this is what this court decided, is that for a non-member, that requiring, only for a non-member, requiring agency fee was unconstitutional, that you could not make them do that. Now, what Janice did not do is apply to anybody who's a member. I'm a member of my union, right? I pay my dues. I signed up. They take my dues out every month. I'm a member full tilt, right? It doesn't apply to me. Janice only applies to non-members. So is Clarkson trying to apply it to everybody? Yes, precisely. Is anybody else in the country? So no I heard a conversation. Um, I'll admit this. I was listening to Dan Fagan. Yeah. I woke up and he was on and Clarkson called in uh, yesterday, I think. Yeah. And he was basically kind of almost kind of bragging, like we're oh, doing this because yeah. I guess 29 or 30 states are right to work, right? Uh, yeah, I think it's 29. Uh-huh. And so the other ones, according to Clarkson or maybe Fagan, they're mostly kind of Democratic states. So there's not that many states that are kind of Republican states like Alaska, um, who's not right to work. So I guess we're kind of leading the charge, it sounds like, in his words. Yeah, in his words, um, there are other states that are not um, super democratic that are um, also not right to work. However, the the issue here is every single attorney general in a state where Janus was in a, would affect the workers because they had public employee unions for whom this law would be germane. So if you're in Texas or Mississippi, it didn't apply to you. You were basically already a right-to-work state. So Janice doesn't apply to you. So for every other state left, every single attorney general in those rebalance of those states interpreted Janice the same way because that's how the court wrote it. It applies to non-members in this very, very narrow cast, right? A non-member cannot be required to pay agency fee. That's it. That's the extent of Janus. So, so Clarkson had said um, on Fagan that it sounds like the goal is to go to the U.S. Supreme Court. Right. Well, what happened with Janus was twofold. One, I think they were hoping to have a more expansive interpretation, and the court didn't give it to them. And secondly, I think they really thought that once they, um, once Janus was the law, that more people would leave their union. But it just hasn't happened. So I heard, is it, is it, is it the opposite? Are more, people, are more people joining? Has there been a surge of... There a, a has Netflix? been in the country. In Alaska, we've had like almost no change at all. But part of it is exactly what you said. Like Janice came out about six months later. Dunleavy becomes the governor. His first week on the job, he fires everybody that's not protected yeah, I think by a lot of people. I think a lot of the union folks, oh shit. 
want to make sure I don't doesn't happen to me. We got a lot of phone calls that day of people who are professionals like lawyers and architects and attorneys trying to figure out how to get into a union that morning because they didn't want to lose their jobs and they didn't want to sign a loyalty pledge so to the a, governor. It's almost like a backfire. Oh. So so now the so why do you think are we like are we are we like an incubator? Is yes, that... I, I I consider what I'm referring to as we're a suitable host. <laughs> you can make a lot of jokes there. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, so he Clarkson wrote this opinion, right? And then what what happens now? Are they going to? So they're trying to say the the members have to. Is it is it opt so, in or is it pay the dues themselves or what are they trying to? So what? Well, it's interesting. They don't have. They have yet to determine what kind of process they want. They have not yet said what they want to do. <clears throat> what he did is he wrote an opinion saying, I think it should cover, I think it should be interpreted this way. That interpretation is contrary to Janice. We responded in the press and said, wow, that's not right. That's not the way this works. That's the way any of this works. So then what happened was um, there were some members who seek to drop their union. And the way it works under both the collective bargaining agreement and under Janice, which is the law of the land, is that those members call their union and their union drops their membership based on whatever's in the contract, right? I mean, the relationship between a member and their union is a contractual relationship. Just like you and your gym membership, just like you and your, you know, your, the relationship with your um, condo, association. condo association, like we're in a contractual relationship with our members. They agree to pay dues for this time. We agree to represent them for this time. So if you're a member and you've signed a dues authorization card, you've agreed to a contract term. So those members, if they seek to drop, if they're in the, if they're in the dropout window of their contract, then they can, they can drop their union membership, not a problem. But the problem here is that the state does not have a role in passing that information back and forth. That's not their role. That's, what is, what is they're the, the employer. What is the role? They just collect the they collect the dues. Their, uh, their job is simply to so the so the the worker agrees to have a deduction out of their payroll, and they send it to the union. That's it. That's the entire role of the of the employer in this relationship. Now, we get a, a new employee meeting with every new employee, and we walk into that meeting and we say. You're free to join the union. You're free not to join the union. These are the benefits of joining the union. If you'd like to join it, you got to fill out this card. How many people join? What percentage? Oh, the overwhelming majority of people join. Like, uh, yeah. 90, more than 90% probably? Yeah, yeah. absolutely. I, I, how much are the dues? I mean, they're... I don't know, because every, every different. union's different. Like, my union dues are like $40 a month. See, it's like it's like so little money. You think about right. it. I mean, I, I was at a job once, a big company, where I was let go, and... Um, I don't want to get into the details of it, but I thought maybe there was something that was not fair. And I went to go to, I was curious, like, what do I do? And he looked at it and he said, oh, I think there, you might, he goes, I'll be honest, there might be something here, you know, about, about uh, what do you call it? Wrongful, uh, wrongful termination. Mm-hmm. But he's like, it's, it would take years. There's depositions, there's uh, discovery, mm-hmm. and it's going to cost probably $50,000. And I don't work on contingency, so I'm going to need some money. Right. I mean, it's just like, there's no, really, there's, if, if you have that kind of money, you're, you're already on a level in a company where you're going to be able to, they aren't going to just set you loose. They're going to get you to sign something. So this is exactly why public employee unions are so important, right? Because the people who work in a public employee environment are often lower, uh, like Jake's bargaining unit, the Alaska State Employees Association, or the GGU members of the general government unit. There's lots of different types of unions in the state employees, but generally speaking, the supervisors are in one unit, 
certain types of confidential employees are in another unit. And then there's a whole bunch of people in the middle who are not represented by a union, you know, the exempt employees. And then you have the GGU unit. And those are the people who just make the wheels of government go around, right? A wildlife biologist, the person who works at DMV, the person who plows, your, who plows the road. The API per- person. API person. Exactly. Uh-huh. They're just doing the work of, the pub- of a public servant. So if that public servant starts to be wrong, they feel like they're being wrongfully terminated. What they're getting for their dues is somebody from the union hall comes over and has a conversation with the head of the bargaining unit and says, what's going on here? I need what? what how can I help you? How can we work this out? How can we help this person? This is not working. We need to figure something out. It's, we're, we're advocates. We're I mean, agents. That, 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 that is so fucking worth $40 a month or, or $100 <laughs> so. a month, you know, like right. just to have, because think about all the times when, when you don't have that and you have this situation where it's like it, it grows and grows and blow, you know, and you have this really horrible work mm-hmm. environment and yeah, that's, um, and plus it probably puts the employer in check too, right? To say, I, I, if I fuck up here and do something really bad, I'm they're going to I'm going to have to deal with that. Well, I do think that the important one of the really important functions of a union in society is that kind of like check and balance to say, you know, employers don't get to do whatever the hell they want. They never have and they never will. And and part of what remember a some couple, cor- couple hundred years ago they could. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's right. I did ask I I was having dinner one night in Chicago with some like General Mills executives and this guy asked me, you know, what I thought about the future of the labor movement and I said, "Well, you know, the labor movement can dwindle." I said, "But we'll reach a point where it'll just be back bigger than ever because it's not even debatable that we that our role is is really really important to protecting workers all the way around and you can lose sight of that and think that everything that we've fought for mm-hmm. you can never lose well, but I guarantee you come to my office any day during the session and follow me around while we are trying to make sure that people are defending the minimum wage, try not to get a tip credit, try not to, they're attacking workers' compensation. Like they, they like the gig economy is destroying the unemployment structure infrastructure as well as the workers' comp infrastructure. Like the attack on the basic things that everybody thinks that they can take for granted, it's a daily assault. Well, and you know, I, I tell a story and, and I, it's funny because I ran in twenty twelve and I was I was the anti labor guy, you know. Mm-hmm. Um like, like I said, I was around some people with Give me bad information. I remember. You, I, you remember. Yeah. And I got real close, too. I almost beat... I mean, I got 45%, but but against Lisa when I ran against... I was kind of running against the coalition, which, mm-hmm. looking back, that was probably the best thing ever. <laughs> um, but, you know, they had fought, like, last... The poll three weeks out, they did a poll, and it was t- it was dead, dead even, and then the mm-hmm. money poured in, and I was like, right. ooh. I didn't, I didn't have any money, right? I was like, right. wow, this is real. This, this stuff <laughs> yeah. really happens. Yeah. Um, but when I was a kid, my dad was a postal where He was 25 years in the mm-hmm. Navy. And then he got out, and you know, you're, you're military. You go to the, work at the post office. There's there's uh, some preferential hiring right, there. Right, veterans preference. Yep. So he was working there, and growing up, he would oftentimes. I was a kid. You know, he'd bitch about the union. You know, protecting this lazy person or these union. You know, this. He'd always have something about the union. And I remember growing up and kind of hearing that. Anyways, one day my dad had a temper, and he was at work, and there was this new uh, manager, boss, supervisor, who would like fuck with him. You know, he would, just didn't like him. He would, he would braid him. He would mess with him. He would he would prod him. He would, right. he would just and this has been going on for a while. And he would tell us about it, and it was this thing. And one day he was he just my dad just went over, he just lost it right. He just he it was too much. 
tipping point. And he pushed the guy against the wall and he put his hand around his throat and he said, if you fuck with me one more time, I'm going to kill you. Yeah. Ooh, I mean, I mean just like something like that. I mean, yeah. don't, don't fuck with me. Maybe yeah. he didn't say kill you, but he said, you know, don't, like, don't leave do me that alone. again. Yeah. Leave me alone. So, you know, people saw that he got, you know, they called in. He's a supporter of my mom, my sister, four, four person family. And they were going to fire him. I mean, they were literally going to fire him. And this is a guy who wasn't even supporting the union. I mean, he was right. in it, but he didn't really like it. And who went to bat for my dad? Right. The union. Right. And and they explained. So in any other situation, this he did this. We see it. It's an isolated. He lost it. He's gone. They started interviewing people. They looked at everything. They realized this guy was braiding my... So they said, no excuse. You can't do that. We're not going to fire you. I think it was a two-week suspension. And, you know, if it happens again, that's, that's a problem. Right. But they came to bat for my dad... And I remember after that, we'd go to like union picnics. <laughs> oh, yeah. No, he He's was like, he was full after that. He was like full union. Yeah. Because he saw what happened. Mm-hmm. And if you're thinking about it, like it's like makes me a little bit because he would have gotten let go. Right. We would have been. I mean, he had a good job, insurance for the family. And after that, I remember just like we were we were a, all of a sudden we were a union family. Right. It's... And, and if that was I go, go back and, and think about that, if that was another type of environment, he would have 100 percent been fired. Right. And it's and people do their best work when they're surrounded by people who have their back, not when they're surrounded by people who are going for their throat. So we think that having a place where people feel supported and work together and are having a healthy, respectful relationship with the employer where they're viewed as the workers are important asset in capitalism. There's no doubt about it. We are very, very important and we need to do our job, but we have just as much right to organize our capital, our ourselves as capital has the right to organize. Uh-huh. And in my mind, you know, capitalism is such a beautiful system, but y- you would, ha- you would be, you would be lying if you said that left to its own devices, it has a lot of con. There's, there's a huge opportunity cost to it too. If you don't have a so don't have a social security net and you don't have protections for people, then the way capitalism works is that you always need a pool of people to work means you always have unemployed people. It, so you have to there's things you have to care for in this system, and how do you care for families that are unemployed when when unemployment is the very it is an essential element to capitalism. Well, what, what, we we have to like there's just systems we have to keep in place. What Churchill say? Capitalism is the worst system. Except for all the other ones. Yep, except for yeah. the other ones. Mm-hmm. Well, Joel, I'm so happy you came in. Um, well, I guess what's the next up with this Janice thing? They're gonna there's gonna be a court. Uh, yeah. So he sued ASCA. The Attorney General um, sued um, ASCA, and so they've dropped a they've dropped a suit, and so they'll be briefing. And I just think we're on our way to Superior Court, then the State Supreme Court, and then... A lot, a lot of litigation in this administration. A lot of litigation in this administration. Yeah, they, 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 I just heard something about, was it this? Was it this one where they hired the D.C. firm? Oh, this is the D.C. Yeah, firm. Yeah, yeah, for 600 an 600 hour. An hour. So, so there was a picture of these four, six dudes that worked there, and this is one guy, have you seen the picture? No. It was on Twitter, somebody shared it, it's like a picture of the six partners in the law firm, and I gotta find it. This one guy, um, it's like these six white dudes, right? Yeah. <laughs> this dude's name is Stephen Bigakis. And he just looks like somebody you want to party with. I yeah. Mean, he just looks like somebody who goes really hard, you know, on the weekends, like like on the yacht. Yeah. Kind of like that kind of party. In Sperry Topsiders and a polo shirt. You know, like, you know, white wine reduction with uh, some amuse-bouche or something. You know? <laughs> so. 
Well, well that- we, we will be going to court and um, we're, uh, you know, you have one AG out of 13 or out of one out of four. He, John Alindamuth, of course, interpreted it different. There were 14 states that interpreted it identically. Now he's reinterpreting it. There's 13 others that say he's, that's, com- he's coming in hot. <laughs> he's coming in hot with a big definition, you know. And um, do you see the? Uh, I made the joke about it. I mean, I thought it was kind of funny. I think some people overreacted, but he was in Louisiana a few weeks ago for gator hunting mm. with um, I forget the AG in Louisiana. But anyways, he posted a picture where he was staying at this lovely uh, plantation house in in Louisiana. <laughs> I mean, it's like this is. Very famous. There's an Atlantic article about this. It was like built by slaves. You know, uh-huh. it was like having a great time at this plantation house. You know, it's like I'm not sure that's the best thing for for Facebook. Well, you know, his track record on these kind of ideological cases is really bad. No, he was very uh, representing some very social conservative causes in the right. past, and um, and he's not been very successful. So we was, should, people that, shouldn't get their hopes up. That was brought up in the uh, yeah. confirmation hearings. You know, pretty right. He, you know, he's got a. He's got a track record of taking on basically what are tantamount to lost causes. And we just have to really, people need to ask the question, who's paying for this crusade? Because right now it looks like the state of state Alaska of Al- yeah, state is of Alaska. paying for this. So the state of Alaska is going to pay for a governor to attack the people who work for him. Theoretically, because he's protecting their First Amendment rights. But remember, let's go back to the first week he was on the job. He made, he fired everybody he could. And then he made him write a loyalty letter. Mm-hmm. Like, there is no way these people have even a um, approximate relationship with the First Amendment. It's ridiculous. He, yeah, it's, um, he's underfunded the judiciary over his disputes over the First Amendment. Like He has some serious issues with the First Amendment. He doesn't really believe in the right to privacy. He doesn't believe this is the freedom to organize, the freedom to assemble. It's, it's just kind of outrageous. This, and the very notion that he thinks he's going to do a better job defending the First Amendment rights of a worker than their union, the employer is going to defend your rights more than the union. I mean, it's laughable. Yeah, this, this Janice thing, uh, I think it's not a great look. No, not no, look. it's not a great look. It's a uh, but he got everybody's attention. Don't worry, we're fully focused. <laughs> fully focused. Well, Joel, I want to thank you for coming in. Normally I do 30 minutes, but you're so fascinating to talk to. Oh, that stop, I, I feel bad. I, I really, too long? I really, no, I'm okay. almost, almost an hour, so. Oh, well, you're, you're, you can uh, cut out some. No, we're doing, I don't, we, we go raw. <laughs> we're, uh, high, if you listen to the podcast, we're uh, high energy, no filter. That's the musical, <laughs> musical intro. I like it. All right, well, thanks for coming in, Joel Hall, with the um, AFL-CIO, Director of Operations and... What else are you? The political oh, der- chief, cook, and bottle washer. Many, many hats. Many hats. Well, I appreciate you coming in, and I've done one of these with Vince Beltrami before. Actually, there's a good story about that in Juno when the person above us was slamming. Oh, on the, I uh, remember that. <laughs> I remember you telling me that. That was so funny, and it was somebody from the governor's office. Oh yeah, yeah. It was. It was pretty wild. It was. It was great. Only in Alaska. So only in Alaska. Thanks, right, Jeff. Well, thanks for coming in. Okay. Appreciate it. Uh-huh. And uh, folks, if you have an idea for a podcast or want to do a podcast, get a hold of me and uh, stay stay tuned for the next one. Landline.